Late last year, a couple of weeks before Christmas, a man in Venezuela was on his way to a barbecue when he got a phone call from the cops. The police said they had just raided his office. They demanded he hand over $15,000, or else they would take his most valuable possession. His computers had mined Bitcoin. They blasted my door and found the machines and then uh, disconnected all of them and, and put them in vans and then uh, took them to the police offices. To protect his identity, we're concealing the real name of the man you just heard from. For the purposes of today's show, we'll call him David. David's home country, Venezuela, has been fighting one of the world's highest inflation rates. The local currency, the Bolivar, is now worth so little it's been used as confetti at soccer games. That's why some enterprising locals, like David, started mining Bitcoin. They mined Bitcoin and converted it to the most precious resource in Venezuela, U.S. dollars. Access to those U.S. dollars was what put a bullseye on David's back. The police received a tip that David had mining equipment. That was a good indication that he had the dollars that the officers and everyone else in the country wanted. Even if you're innocent, you're still going to spend a month or two months in prison while everything clears out. Instead of risking jail time, David and his family threw a few belongings in their suitcases and made a dash for the Colombian border. I had cash money in my hand and, and I just uh, passed on my passport to the, to the immigration officer in the, in the border and, and hoped for the best. Hi, I'm Brad Stone. And I'm Camila Russo. And this week on Decrypted, we'll see how Venezuela became an unlikely hub for mining Bitcoin. Around the world, Bitcoin has been viewed as a risky investment. But for some people in Venezuela, with the currency in freefall, Bitcoin became a financial lifeline. When the police came for David, Bitcoin mining in Venezuela was unregulated. The police used this lack of clarity to harass and threaten miners to make them hand over their money. The Venezuelan government legalized Bitcoin mining in January, but miners I've spoken to say they're still getting harassed. Stay with us. from a small city in, in the mid-west of uh, Venezuela. David's hometown is Barquisimeto, a busy crossroads in the heart of the country. It's really pretty calm to grow up there because you can have a smooth family life where you can go to school and then go, to, go home for lunch. David says he grew up wanting to study the law and become a businessman. He ended up doing both. In 1999, when David was still a teenager, Hugo Chavez became president, but he was almost ousted in 2002. Hundreds of thousands of people protested. It was at one of those protests that David, still a high school student, met his wife. It was January 2003, 2003, when the protests were being held in Plaza Altamira in Caracas. We were protesting in our city, like... Uh, and we met because uh, she was with a friend of mine from school and I was with my cousin. After college, David and his wife lived in Europe for a few years, 
In 2012, they came back to Venezuela, believing the political situation was about to change. Elections were coming, and David thought the opposition candidate, Enrique Capriles, might win. He had many young fans who rallied behind him with cheerful campaign songs. And I thought I, my country was going to get better and improve, and we're gonna, I, I quit my job to start my business in Venezuela with my wife, and we did. But Hugo Chavez won. And then a year later, he died, leaving Venezuela with a big national deficit, a weak boulevard, and food shortages. Nicolas Maduro became the new leader. But David and his wife were already back in Venezuela, trying their best to run a radiology business. And political tensions were rising again. And then afterwards, it was all downhill because the protests were like a block away from our business or two blocks away. President Maduro maintained the populist policies of Hugo Chavez, but a decline in the price of oil, Venezuela's main export, hit the country hard. Conditions got worse. Protests erupted again in early 2014, leaving many dead. They were happening right outside David's office. The tear gas entered to our, our office every day for like the three consecutive months, so it was... It was awful because people weren't working, and when they were working, uh, if you work, you work half a day because half a day you protested. David felt politically aligned with the protesters and would close the office for major strikes, but it started to impact his business. We as a business um, supported the strike and, and we closed uh, most of the day, so uh, we had to put money from our pockets to pay for salaries uh, during the strikes. As David's business was faltering, he discovered another way to make money. That's coming up next. By late 2014 and early 2015, the economic situation in Venezuela was becoming critical. Now to the crisis in Venezuela, which takes many forms, economic, political, social, but perhaps nothing is more harmful day to day than shortages of medicine and food. Put simply, many Venezuelans are starving to death and their government often can't or won't do anything to help. The value of the boulevard was in free fall and David was desperate for a way to protect what remained of his savings. Many people were trying to buy dollars on the black market at a very unfavorable exchange rate. But then another option emerged, Bitcoin mining. My younger brother was the one who first bought the, a couple of machines and like just out of curiosity because a friend introduced him to, the, to this world. At first, David was skeptical. What I told my brother is, I want to see you sell some currency and get U.S. dollars for it before I, I risk the little dollars I have to to buy machines or buy currency. Cautiously, David started setting up his own mining operation. Bitcoin is run by a network of computers competing to solve complicated math problems, which verify transactions on the network. That's known as mining. And computers that solve those problems get rewarded in Bitcoin. It gave David a way to pay for things that were becoming harder to afford. I bought uh, like three or four just to to pay for, like, I don't know, um, private insurance uh, abroad and things that you couldn't uh, easily pay.
pay with, uh, with the local currency. One of the largest costs in mining is the huge amount of electricity it requires. But in Venezuela, power is heavily subsidized, which makes cryptocurrency mining almost free. David just had to be able to buy the computers. People started buying these machines to pay for the luxuries they couldn't afford anymore with uh, their regular jobs. At first, it was a thing like it was an activity to pay for for luxury. And after that, it, it became a necessity because if you didn't mine, there was no way to acquire uh, dollars or, or any other currency to, to purchase the food or medicine that you couldn't find in Venezuela. For a while, this setup worked for David. His mining operations slowly grew from the three computers he started with. I wouldn't say we rushed into the business. Like it was, We did it uh, step by step and by reinvesting whatever we, we were earning. Eventually, he had as many as 21 computers mining Bitcoin and David could sell his Bitcoin through online exchanges and get U.S. dollars. It became his main source of income. Until last year, there were no regulations in Venezuela around cryptocurrency mining. It wasn't illegal, but it, wasn't, it was just deregulated, so we didn't want to get it, uh, so much exposure. With the economy in Venezuela crashing, Bitcoin miners were becoming conspicuous for the money they had access to. Even if it's legal, you're basically saying that you have a factory of currencies wherever you have the machines. And you're, you have a machine that produces, produces a currency that, that's easily traded for U.S. dollars. And you're doing that in a country where the minimum wage is actually like, like regular workers are earning 4 or $5 a month. In fact, as of this taping, the minimum wage is now barely over a dollar a month. And if you have a machine that produces 150 or 200, you're producing what 40 workers are doing in one month. David and his brother tried to keep their Bitcoin mining quiet. The little machines we had, we split them into many uh, offices we had uh, rented or our own. But the police and military were starting to target Bitcoin miners, demanding payoffs in Bitcoin or dollars. Miners who refuse to cooperate might be charged with petty crimes or have their mines stolen. In addition to David, I've spoken to three other miners in Venezuela who say they went through something similar. We always knew that in, in Venezuela, you don't need to, ha- you don't need to be guilty or, or be committing a crime to, to go to prison. So uh, you always have to take your precautions. Then last year, the suppliers where David's radiology office started having trouble procuring U.S. dollars. That meant they couldn't import materials from overseas. David says he was barely able to continue running his business. On 2017, everything stopped completely. Like, we, we didn't restock materials. We, we haven't restocked materials for more than a year and a half. You can say we held on for five years until we decided it was no longer uh, profitable to keep it open with the hyperinflation that's currently there. As of last year, President Nicolas Maduro was so strapped for cash, he stopped paying back international creditors and buying imports to stock hospitals and supermarket shelves. In early December, Maduro announced plans to issue the country's own cryptocurrency, the Petro, as a way of raising funds. The news came during a boom in Bitcoin prices. 
el Petro. But despite the new, seemingly crypto-friendly climate, I've spoken to miners who say the police have continued to harass them. As soon as Maduro started talking about cryptocurrencies, uh, a couple of weeks later, all the cops in, in town were hunting for the machines, like uh, patrolling at night, trying to listen for the noise. And by the way, what David's referring to here is the humming of the computers as they mine cryptocurrencies. Miners are also discovered because the high electricity consumption attracted attention. Because they knew the machine produced money and they knew that uh, taking away the machines from you would make you pay them uh, a ransom. Camilla, it sounds really frightening, but I, I guess the police are just as desperate as everybody else for money that can retain its value. Yes, definitely. And then, less than a month after President Maduro went on TV to talk about the Petro, a tenant in David's office building, the same building where David had his Bitcoin mine, had a run-in with the police. My neighbor, uh, he sold or he exported plastic chairs or something to Panama and to Colombia. And he also, I think, uh, what I heard from police sources was that he was, he was storing like four tons of sugar, which in Venezuela is also a crime. And he, he got a raid and, and, and he, they threatened to throw him in jail for many years. Remember, Venezuela is dealing with a chronic shortage of supplies. So the government established tight controls to stop people from stockpiling essentials. Faced with the prospect of going to jail, David says his neighbor snitched on him. He ratted me out because he had heard the noise of the machines uh, at some point. So he told the police that he, that, that he would uh, deliver a bigger fish so if they were lenient on his case. They blasted my door, a door that communicated both, both of our places, and found the machines and then uh, disconnected all of them and, and put them in vans and then uh, took them to the police offices. I wasn't there, I was uh, actually far away from the office, but they, they called me and they told him me they wanted $15,000 to not give it to the prosecutor's office. Keep in mind, $15,000 is an enormous amount of money in Venezuela. The currency is almost worthless now. An ordinary person might live off $200 for a month or two. They also downloaded all of the pictures of my family that they had on the that I had on the computer that was in, at the place. That night they called me to, to say that uh, they had pictures of my family and that uh, they knew where I went to school and what I did and where I had all my businesses. So um, that if I didn't deliver the 15,000 in cash, I, they would go um, making raids in all of the places. The very same night as a police raid, David decided to escape with his family. I think I was home, and uh, I packed my bags and, and headed for the Colombian border because uh, I have two small sons, so I just didn't want to take any chances. We just managed to put, like, the medicines for the kids and, and whatever, like, was urgent for them, and, I don't know, the clothes we had on, like, at, at first hand, and, but we left pretty much everything, and we just took whatever fit in, like, three, three bags. Under cover of night, David and his family crossed into Colombia. From there, they flew to the U.S. and made their way to Europe.
Ante la petición de la superintendencia, creo que es el día perfecto para aprobar la autorización y que por vía de internet... President Maduro legalized Bitcoin mining in late January, just weeks after David and his family fled the country. Miners can now register through an official website to get authorization. But miners I've spoken to are wary about going through that process. They don't trust the authorities. The rules are unclear, but they always hang on to something. They say that you haven't paid for your import duties. And if you paid for your import duties, then they say you're uh, exceeding the, the electricity um, uh, assignment that you were given. And if, they, and if it's not that, they will say... Uh, you are uh, money laundering because you, you cannot prove where you're using the money or, or where the money came or where the money is going. And by the way, we tried contacting the Superintendency of Cryptocurrencies in Venezuela to ask about these reports of Bitcoin miners getting harassed, but we never heard back. Venezuela issued the Petro in February, and President Maduro claims it's raised $5 billion from countries including China and Russia. That would make it the largest initial coin offering ever. The president said the Petro, which is meant to be backed by oil reserves, must become legal tender for all transactions involving government institutions. But few, if any, exchanges outside of Venezuela have listed the Petro. U.S. President Donald Trump banned all transactions with the Petro, so it's hard to say what demand has been like. Demand for Bitcoin in Venezuela, on the other hand, continues to soar. Daily transactions climbed to a record $1 million recently. Although, David thinks it won't be viable to mine cryptocurrency in Venezuela for much longer. The power supply in Venezuela has become increasingly unstable. Even the, the, the people who work at maintenance at the uh, Corpo Elect, that is the national uh, electricity company, they're all migrating also. And when, when, when the technicians, everyone, everyone uh, capable, leaves... Uh, the, the electrical grid will decline. So, Camilla, do you have any sympathy for the government's position here? Because they are subsidizing electricity use, and here are the Bitcoin miners taking advantage of that. I think it's easy to have sympathy here for everyone involved, since in the end, everyone is being affected by this enormous economic crisis that Venezuela is going through. But still, I think the real victims here are Bitcoin miners. I mean, they, they were able to find a way to get by in a country that's basically, it's become really hard to live in. Um, and that's because of the government's own actions. So, yeah, I think the, the victims here are the Bitcoin miners. Right. And here they are now getting harassed by authorities. What are the worst stories you've heard in terms of uh, miners' encounters with police? Well, besides David's story, which is pretty dramatic, you know, he had to just leave the country, leave everything he owned behind. I talked to one miner who had to spend a couple of nights in jail, got beat up by the cops. I know another miner who was threatened, was physically threatened by by the police. And just, you know, other stories of, of people living in permanent paranoia, you know, feeling that they're being followed, not knowing where where and when the police and, and the military m might show up. The situation in Venezuela is, is clearly unique, but do you think there are any lessons for other members of the Bitcoin community or other miners around the world in what's happened here? Yes, I think this is an, an extreme case, but it does speak to the lack of regulation that there is in the broader cryptocurrency and 
Bitcoin mining community around the world. I mean, the, the, there isn't clear regulation everywhere. Uh, we've seen in other countries that have become large hubs for cryptocurrency mining, such in China, where, you know, officials and authorities, you know, decided to crack down on Bitcoin miner. Miners had to move elsewhere. So you get this kind of unstable environment and, and regulatory framework everywhere in the world. Right. Yeah. Miners are drawing on this public resource electricity. And as Bitcoin mining requires more of it, it does make sense that uh, governments around the world will have to react. Camilla, tell us what David is up to right now and how he's doing. Today, David is in Europe building a new life. He's still able to practice law and hopes to get a job with a legal firm. Until then, he's acting as a translator for Venezuelans applying for visas to leave the country. His wife is registering as a dentist so she can start practicing. And his two kids are adjusting to their new life. David hopes that one day he'll be able to return to Venezuela. But he thinks it will take years for the economy to recover. And I hear there's one thing that hasn't changed. David's still in the business of cryptocurrency mining. I do. I have, I have some machines in, in Canada. It's not as profitable as in Venezuela because uh, we pay for electricity pretty much. It's cheaper than, than most of places, but it's, uh, it's still a big chunk of the, of the mining operation. The plants were always there. We just rushed them uh, when everything happened in Venezuela. Like We were going to do it. Uh, just n- not just for the, for the legal or not legal environment, but because it, like the electricity is way stabler, uh, way, it's way more stable, and, um, and you, ha- you don't have to be worried that if, if the machines are going to still be there when you wake up. And that's it for this week's Decrypted. Thanks for listening. Let us know what you thought of today's show. You can email us at decrypted at bloomberg.net or reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Russo. And I'm at Brad Stone. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. They really help us reach new listeners. This episode was produced by Pia Gadkari, Magnus Henriksen, and Liz Smith. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. We'll see you next week.